Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Tommy McNulty. He is the founder and CEO of Rhythm. What we're going to look at today is why it's crucial that you become fluent in the language of finance. And if you're a leader in sales, why you need to become fluent in your sales PL. What we really want is for you to realize that if you understand your PL, then you can make better decisions. So you don't descend into the usual chaos. You don't overhire. You don't overassign quota. You don't end up investing in stuff you can't afford. You don't end up building monolithic teams that you cannot possibly sustain. And you build a business as if it's meant to be profitable. I mean, heaven forbid that anyone sets a business up to make a profit. So, Tommy, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. Excited to be here. It's my pleasure. Look, could you give us a couple of minutes on your history and how you ended up setting up Rhythm? I think that background story is um, instructive. Yeah, for sure. I'm uh, originally from New York. I grew up in Brooklyn before Brooklyn became cool. Everyone <laughs> used to think when I said I was from Brooklyn that I was going to be like a tough guy. And then uh, fast forward, you know, after I graduated college, everyone thought I was going to be an artist. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of somewhere in the middle um, and turned into <laughs> this, this, this sales guy. I spent my entire high school and, and college work life actually working in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school in Brooklyn. And oh, wow. it's, actually where I, it's actually where I learned how to sell. I would walk up and down the street with a clipboard, actually, and try to get people to sign up for a class and give me their credit card, actually, so we could charge them for that class to ensure that they were going to come. And it was a really just fantastic experience. Um, probably still one of the most profitable businesses I ever worked for. It grew to nine schools really quickly. I just learned a ton about business and humanity and all these wonderful things. I graduated college and I, I started my career at ZocDoc, actually, many, many moons ago. And was an SDR there, became an AE there, quickly ascended. And I was the number one rep in the company for a little while. Learned a lot about scale and sort of what can happen at scale, what works at scale, what can be potentially challenging at scale from my time there. I had a, a bit of a startup bug um, and I wanted <laughs> to really be early, early, early stage somewhere. And I, I, I jumped over to a company called Dash, which was a, a, an early precursor to mobile payments technology, actually, which was helping bars, restaurants, and hospitality chains create loyalty programs through payments. Hard business at the time. Uh, we were selling like pay your tab via QR code back in 2013. I would get salt shakers thrown at my head at, at, at restaurants because they're like, no one will ever do this. This will never, ever happen. <laughs> and, and then uh, fast forward to now, and it's, it's, it's more of the norm than not. So you um, were the Apple Newton of your time, were you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, really interesting lesson on market timing there. We're just a little bit too early. We did wind up selling the company. It was a nice outcome for everybody. And then... Um, I spent the next six years alongside a, a group of wonderful people building Fundera, which was a small business lending marketplace. Had your typical pretty big revenue function that I was responsible for there. At peak, it was about 80 salespeople, all of your lines of management across directors and sales reps and sales operations. Grew that business to be a really fantastic, highly profitable company. Wound up selling the company to NerdWallet at the end of 2020 where I then uh, became head of B2B at NerdWallet and kind of just kept the train running. And for me, um, I felt that during my time at Fundera, I learned something very interesting. 
which was that if I was going to be the best possible leader for the sales team, I didn't actually have to start with sales. I didn't have to start with management. I didn't have to start with industry knowledge. I actually had to start with math. And this is this is sacrilege to, to all to all of our <laughs> of, of our salespeople, right? We we get on the phone, we close deals, we we, we love the thrill of it. We're, we're we you know, and and for me, when when I first stepped into the role, it just became so abundantly clear that I could wreak chaos on the company and the sales team based on the decisions that I made around how we hired how we set up incentives, how we segmented customers. And then if I didn't get these decisions right, not only would I kill the company, I would certainly lose my job. So, so I went down this path with a, a really amazing uh, executive team to get very, very P&L fluent. And where I had a hard time later on after we kind of went through that journey was getting everybody, as we scaled the team, was getting everybody else as P&L fluent the directors, the managers, the decision makers for the sales organization. And I got so obsessed with the idea of this is the way to become an amazing people leader for sales organizations that I, I quit my job and decided to pursue productizing this full-time, which is what Rhythm does today. Okay. So this is really very interesting because it's a, obviously an original perspective, certainly one that I haven't been exposed to in the past, but it does make a good deal of sense to try and know what you're dealing with before you start making decisions. And I think it is a disease within sales that we're, we're in such a hurry so much of the time that we mm -hmm. don't spend time in reflection. And I would start there and um, start with, well, what are we trying to accomplish? For us to be able to accomplish that, what does that business need to look like? Let's plan and design that. For us to generate that kind of revenue, what does the um, organizational structure need to look like? What roles are going to be in place that need to execute it? And I, I think people, more often than not, and God knows I've done it five times so far, um, is you jump into a great idea and think, well, that make a bloody good business. Let's get on with it. Um, because the entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial spirit is shoot, then ask questions later. And I think taking a, a more cerebral approach makes a good deal of sense. But many sales leaders are not really equipped. They're, they're not competent to do that because they don't have that knowledge. What is the basic fundamental knowledge that they do need? Because you see a lot of battlefield promotions where the previous incumbent was let go, but a good producer then gets uh, shoved into the job and that's their runway. So what, what's, what are the basics that people need to learn as they're moving from a management into a directorial or leadership role, and they've never looked at the P&L in detail before? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's a lot simpler than most people think that it is. So it starts in a very, in a very simple place, which is how much money is each sales rep going to generate this year net of churn? That's it. That's where it starts, right? You know, so some some call it average, you know, average revenue per employee or, or ARP or revenue per head. However, you want to talk about it, that's where you start. And in the early days of a company, you're making some assumptions, but once you have a couple of years of data on your company, you should start to be able to look look backwards and say, okay, this is 
this is what people can actually do at this company. So that's where you start. And that number might be 400K, it might be 800K, it might be $5 million. But that number is, go is going to be like the epicenter of now how everything else happens like in your sales organization. Now, the next thing you have to understand is what is the upper bound of a CAC that your company is going to be okay with that isn't going to break over time. And what you have to, what you have to think about is what other costs do the company, does the company already have to acquire customers? For argument's sake, let's just use some basic numbers. Every customer absent of sales already requires a $1,000 CAC from marketing, right? Per customer. So right. we, we, we have that now. And then we have to start to think about, okay, well, let's say each of our customers is worth $10,000 to us in the first year net of churn. How much more can I spend to get that $10,000? It's probably $2,000, right? It's not five, it's not eight, certainly not 15, right? Which we've seen a, a, across a lot of you know, venture scale businesses. But you have to start with that unit math of, okay, this is how much we can spend per customer. The next thing you have to do is understand the volume that's possible for a salesperson. So how many deals can they do or do we need them to do in order to start making that math work? And from there, you have to determine, like you start with the AE, right? Who is the person that's going to close the deal? How much can you pay them? How many of them do you need before you ever go into other roles? You have to start at that, at that level. And if you can generate a million and a half dollars on an AE that makes 250K, then you have some room to bring in an SDR team. But if you can't, if you can only generate 750K on an AE that makes 250, your company can't support SDRs because your math is already broken. So it strikes me that even before the sales leader needs to be able to read and understand the sales PL, would it not make sense for the investors? A hundred percent. I think most investors do understand the sales PL and where it has to be. And I think most CFOs understand the sales PL and where it has to be. I think where the breakdown happens is the, you know, the, the people on the field, the VP of sales, the director of sales. It's not that they don't understand it. It's that it's just never been discussed or talked about. It's been go close deals, go get to the number, go grow as fast as we possibly can. But what I went through at my former company was sort of what a lot of companies are going through now, which was like, hey, like you're going to be valued on an EBITDA multiple, not a revenue multiple. So you need to go find religion on how we can make each individual sales rep extremely profitable versus each individual sales rep a, a machine and just closing deals. It's a subtle difference. It's a really important difference at the recruitment stage because the decisions that you're making based on your understanding of the PL, what you're trying to accomplish and so on, will determine the kind of people that you hire. Are they transactional? Are they looking at the long term? Are they customer centric or are they self-centered? All yep. of these things are factors that will determine uh, your churn rate. 
your expression oh, rate. One hundred percent. And I mean, we, we've all seen this, right? Where you are a mid-market company who brings in a super enterprise rep, it doesn't work out, or you're an enterprise company and you bring somebody in who had success at SMB, and they don't work out. And it creates the syllabus for what the team needs to look like. And you can make a lot of bad people decisions if you don't understand this math. And I think that's the really the, the crux of all of this. Okay. I'm not disagreeing. I am going to posit that if there is a purpose that everyone is trying to meet and work towards, then it's much easier to unify the business behind it. If the business is just there in a mercenary fashion to make money, then it's unlikely that you're going to get people who really care about the customer and who care about the long-term well-being of the business. They're going to be very, very transactional. So that, I believe, is more often than not driven by what the valuation criteria are and how you compensate your people. So again, this does feed back into the PL without question, but I'm wondering whether or not there is a values question that needs to be addressed first um, to make sure that everybody is aligned, or am I just being terribly um, idealistic? To be blunt, I went through this journey myself, right? I think it's idealistic. I think that you will never be able to live up to values for a customer, for an employee, for a greater mission if the business fails. And the business will eventually fail if the math doesn't work. And I think it's important to be customer-centric and employee-centric. And But those are actually tactics in just making the business work. And at the core of business is actually just the ability to have a little bit more money at the end than what you started with. And if you don't, then all the wonderful things we want to do actually can't happen. Okay, I'm going to take issue with you because I'm thinking about... <laughs> The world's longest lived business was over a thousand years old. It was a Japanese temple building business. And mm -hmm. guess what happened when they brought in private equity in order to try and... <laughs> they started skimping on, on, on the candles, I imagine, and, and found cheaper wax. <laughs> it, it was a thousand and thirty year old business that went under within a couple of years of private equity getting involved. Now, maybe it wasn't going to survive. Who knows? But I, I'm guessing if it made it through a thousand years, there was probably some resilience building. <laughs> now, the reality in my mind is that there is a rush and there are lots of businesses out there that are not in a hurry, that are traditional businesses that are not tech, that have grown really well by always keeping in mind the reason that they got started, which is we exist to serve a customer who has a problem. And it's the distraction away from that to trying to become a unicorn very quickly that creates the seed. And then when you don't know how to read your PL, you start making really bloody awful decisions because you're reacting out of fear. So that, that's my thesis. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. No, I think I think you're right. I think the, what the underscore of that all is not every business should have VC or private equity ever involved with their company. There's this quote by you know Josh Koppelman from First Round, which is, "I sell rocket fuel. If I try to put rocket fuel into a motorcycle, it's going to explode." 
as a business, like you have to determine from day one, like, are you a rocket or are you a motorcycle? Mm -hmm. And it's a simple analogy, but I think what's, what's happening in the market now is that we put in a lot of rocket fuel into a lot of motorcycles, Mm -hmm. actually. And we're trying to use the rocket fuel to make the motorcycles go faster and then hire a bunch of people and set up these like robust sales organizations. But at the end of the day, like that's for the rocket, not for the motorcycle. So if you can build a resilient business without BCPE, God bless you, right? Like go and do that and get profitable and continue to serve your customers. But you know, at the, at the end of the day, like, like, like we mentioned, like even small businesses, and I spent a lot of my career helping small businesses understand their P&Ls, like they still can't serve their customers if there's not more left at the end than there was at the beginning. Okay. Again, I think the thesis you're coming at this with is really strong, but I look at someone like 37 Signals, and this is a company of 80 people with about 180,000 customers paying $50 a month. I want one of them. Really want one of them. I do not want a billion dollar unicorn, which is basically giving me an ulcer and a heart attack. And I'm (laughs) up to my ass in debt. And my life is not my own. I want a small, successful, profitable business that creates real wealth and real employment and real value. But again, it depends on your ambition and what you're in it for, I suspect. Yeah, I think... There's a lot of different ways to look at it. Like, what does the founder of the company want? What do the employees of the company want? Are you looking for a period of your life to have true work-life balance? Or do you want to be 15, 16 hours a day, heads down on something? There's a lot of decisions that go into that. And this is kind of, I think, I think like a secondary problem of what's happened in the last couple of years is that it got a little bit easier to work inside of a venture-scale company or a venture-backed company because it was money was just so free flowing that, you know, we, we always had a tomorrow, right? So today was never that urgent. And back to the, the rocket fuel analogy, <laughs> like, you know, a rocket blowing up is a far more traumatic event than a motorcycle hitting a tree, right? <laughs> and, it, and it hurts, it it hurts a lot more. Driving. It, it, yeah, yeah, but it, it hurts a lot more people. And uh, the, the thing I think, like, just to consider is like understanding as an employee, like what you're stepping into. And then if you are stepping into one of the venture scale companies that's going to grow really fast and has all this rocket fuel in it, the math is going to have to work eventually. Even if it doesn't work today, it's going to have to work. I'm a big fan of having that endpoint clear in our mind. Yeah. So describe to me what a really good, healthy PL should look like so that we can aspire to it. For a sales team, you start with contribution margin. How much money net of churn does this salesperson generate per year? Now, once you have that number, let's say it's 800K, right? Let's say that's how much they spend. That's how much they can make. You can pay that salesperson $150,000 total. That's how that math works. Because you then have to factor in the software that the salesperson needs. So that's 5x their revenue. You're going to eat into more of that because, again, we're going to factor in the software they need to sell. We're going to factor in their benefits. We're going to factor in, um, you know, SPIF um, or, or, you know, money that you might spend to help them land deals, like sending a customer a gift or things like that. 
So it's actually going to look at the end more like four times revenue, right? Because you're going to have like a 200K fully baked sales rep. And that is, that would, that's an A minus, right? <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I, I want to, it's like, a, it's, it's kind of like, okay, it's good enough, right? Good businesses get that a lot, a lot higher and push that a lot further up. But that's where you need to kind of aspire to in the, in the near term. And it's important to understand if that math is broken, you can't hire more people. You can't start assigning quotas. Like your, your sales team is going to be broken as a function of your math being broken. So, and So if I can just just ask then, uh, what am I looking for on the PNL as early warning signs that would be a trigger and their points of interest that say this needs further investigation and maybe there's a red flag. It's, I mean, it's, it starts with revenue. And again, it's a, it's a pretty simple one, but how much revenue are we generating relative to the cost of the sales organization? And again, just to use kind of simple numbers here, let's say we generate a million dollars a year. The, the total cost of your sales organization can't exceed 250K, right? So if you need an AE that makes 200K a year, the rest of that 50K is going to get sucked up by benefits and software and the other things that need to get their job done. You can't have an SDR. So if you have an SDR right now, that 250K becomes 350K because it's an 80K salary and then more. So if you add that SDR, you have to incrementally then add the revenue to account for the cost of the SDR. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, absolutely, because they have to produce more just to stand yeah. still. Yeah, and, and now now let's throw in the CS manager, right, who has to serve the account after it's been closed. That's another 150K employee, right? So they come in at 200K. Now we're at over 500K for these three people to serve this one, to serve this revenue number. That math doesn't work, right? For those three people to exist, that revenue number has to be $2 million, mm-hmm. not $1 million. and this is kind of the math that I'm that I'm talking about of like truly understanding the cost basis of your sales team relative to the revenue that's coming in or can come in. And I, I feel like I sound very much like uh, a finance person when I talk about this, and I'm not because I think the well, this is the root of when we make decisions that wreak chaos on other people's lives. And <laughs> it's also the starting point of the fracture between finance and sales. Because if you as the sales leader cannot speak the language of finance and understand, when you understand a CFO's mindset, a CFO is largely paid to be paranoid. Their job (laughs) is to protect against all risk. Regulatory compliance risk is their top priority. Then they want to make sure that capital protection is top of their agenda, which means mm-hmm. that they don't end up the year worse off than they started it. And then growth comes a poor third after those mm-hmm. two high paranoia, high stress um, activities or mm-hmm. duties. So turning up with a half assed proposition asking for a bunch of money for headcount and then being told to fuck off quite quickly and then being offended by it is a problem with you. It's not a problem with the CFO. The CFO's job is to protect the business against all threats, internal and external. Mm -hmm. And as a sales leader, 
who's making bad decisions and creating the conditions where you have a revolving door in sales. You hire 10 in the hope that three maybe make it to the end of the year and one makes it to the end of year two. That is a massive crashing waste of money. And I'm really curious about how you can read the PL to uncover the hidden costs. Because the three biggest hidden costs, in my experience, number one, bad hires. You hire the wrong people, you end up with a massive hangover. I have a calculator for anyone who wants it of the cost of the true cost of a wrong hire in an enterprise AE. If you get away with only 35 times salary, you're doing okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, then uh, you've got this massive problem that everybody seems to be pulling in different directions. So there's no alignment there. And what then happens is you end up spending money on the hidden cost of sale because you don't account for all the different touches and all the different factions and all the different blame and fucking around that goes on. And then you have RFPs, which are the third highest hidden cost of pursuit. So, you know, hidden cost of pursuit is massive, but RFPs, that's something you should be avoiding like the plague. And it's all there on the PL if you know how to look for it. Yeah, and I, I would say that there, there's, you know, in, in, in the world that I've lived in, which is the startup venture capital world, there's there's something else that happens, which is it's like an unquantifiable cost that is actually just disaster, which is you're starting the revenue team over and over and over again. Yeah. Like you like yeah. you you continue you continuously start from scratch, actually, and you have to wipe wipe the board clean, which is a, I mean, there's nothing worse than that, right? You know, founders are not hitting their targets, VCs aren't getting their returns, salespeople are all getting fired. Well, salespeople are getting, so you've touched on something, and I think this could be really interesting, and I wonder whether Rhythm can help. If I look at virtually every um, vendor organization I've ever worked with, they spend an outrageous amount of money uh, to try and scream in the faces and ears of their TAM to drag them onto their marketing platform so they can scream into their deafened ears, we're here, look at us. And they'll spend $92 uh, to acquire a lead uh, and $1 to close them. And they spend a vast amount of that money driving them into the arms of their competition, which begs <laughs> the question, is there a better way? And what can the PL tell us uh, to inform us where we should be asking these intelligent questions. Yeah, I think again, it's it's a syllabus, right? So, in in your analogy, if we spent ninety two dollars to acquire the customer into our ecosystem, and then we wanted to spend one dollar to close them, then we have to have a product that salespeople can close two three hundred deals a month, right? Right, like 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 that. That's how that is going to go, right? And and there are businesses like that where it's, it's hyper transactional. It's a one call close, and that makes sense. Or I mean, maybe it makes sense. That's not going to make sense if you need if it's more complex B two B or it's a higher ticket size or whatever that might look like. Which is this again kind of comes back to this like what is the game on the field? So if we're we're spending $92 to acquire a customer on the marketing side. The next question is, cool, what is that customer going to be worth to us, right? Are they going to be worth $500 or $1,000 or $10,000? And that number then dictates how much additional cost you can add in to that. And that additional cost is the sales organization, right? So let's say you can add in another $200 in additional cost, 
right? That you, that you can add in. And that becomes how much money you can spend on sales for that customer. So that could be one AE, that could be an AE and SDR, that could be an AE and SDR and a CM or a CSM, but it really, really depends on how many then deals you close, right? So it's all um, um, like a, a math formula, right? And, and I, I also want to caveat that, like this isn't like a one and done, we figure it no. out one time and we do this. Like we, I used to sit down with our CFO. He was my first meeting at the start of every performance cycle, whether it was a month or a quarter. What happened? What broke? Why did it break? And we, if we had to maybe rethink our assumptions around how many deals one person can close, how much revenue one person can bring in, that would then influence a whole other series of decisions, which would, how many people should we hire? What sorts of training should we do, right? Things like that. And it's a very, very consistent, hyper-aligned, fine-tuning that has to happen in order to actually do this well. Just to give you an example, right? Let's, let's talk about ramp for a second. Mm, so talk. you can think about ramp as the CAC for your sales team, right? And all the money that they bring in after ramp as the LTV. So you might say, yeah, okay, we're going to put a, a rep through a four-month ramp, but we're then going to get a 20-month fully reliable, consistent winner after that. And that's an equation that we're okay with. Here's the problem with ramp, right? And, and, and I say problem loosely because it's not really a problem where like we, we want to ramp people. We don't want to give people quotas on day one, but it becomes harder to fail fast, right? Because you've sort of assigned, okay, well, you have a four-month ramp. You can't fail during ramp, you know, and then you'll go into our system and we'll see what happens after that. Now, back to math for a second here. You've now lost four months on somebody during their ramp program. Yeah. They come out of that ramp program and they're not productive for the next three months, right? And maybe they get productive in month eight. You actually have a seven month ramp period, not a four month, a four month ramp period. And that changes the mathematics of the sales team dramatically on how much you have to spend per person to ramp up just to get to pr like productivity. That one thing in and of itself can completely destroy a sales organization, like completely, because you're actually not getting the return on the rep that you need while they're in this ramp or unproductive period. So this is one of the conversations that the, the VP of sales and the CFO need to really, really, really have because maybe a seven month ramp period will work because you have really big deals that you do and you build a lot of pipeline during that process, whatever that looks like. But if that's not the case, then you've just like set a bunch of money on fire and then this person is probably gonna wind up leaving your company anyway. There are a couple of things I see time and time and time again, and they scream to me as alarm bells. The first one is the fixation with short-term pipeline. Certainly in the enterprise space, the idea that you're gonna close an enterprise customer in three to six months, especially in this economy, yes, it can happen, but it creates an unholy haste and pressure that if you were focused on your medium to long-term pipeline, you would have deeper and wider relationships I've seen this play out time and time again because I've been working this system for, what, 15, 16 years with clients. When they focus on their medium to long-term pipeline, in a very short space of time, that becomes short-term pipeline. 
but they don't have the peaks and troughs. They don't have the uncertainty. And the net result is they don't have to then pillage next quarter's uh, pipeline and try and drag stuff forward at a ludicrous discount and then suffer years and years of discounted revenues. Now, mm -hmm. it was okay when money was free and money was flowing freely, but I think you've obviously timed this extremely well because now companies actually have to make a profit. But that doesn't seem to have been high on many uh, tech companies' uh, priority list for a long while. Yeah, and I, I think if we can just maybe take a hypothetical example, right? And let's say you're an enterprise rep and there's a year-long ramp, right? You're not expected to close a deal your first year at the company because it's a long deal cycle and we want you to focus on your medium to long-term pipeline. And let's say we're going to pay you a 300K OTE. We're going to guarantee you that OTE for your first year. Your quota is going to hit it in your second year. Now, in that second year, we now have to make up for the 300K from year one and the 300K that they're going to make in year two. So that's 600K. That rep has to generate $2.4 million in that second year. That's the math that has to work in that scenario. And this is kind of what I come back to on PL fluency with the CFO. If that math is not going to work, then you have to solve other problems first, right? Whether it's getting deals to close faster. You, you have to, to say that again. You, you have to. You have to make that math. You, you have to figure out other problems in the business first, whether it's being able to drive up your ACV or get deals done faster or be able to pay people less money because you can get people ramped up that have less experience, whatever that decision is. Because if you spend 300K in year one for no deals, then 300K in year two for some deals, but the some deals in year two worked out to $1 million, which would be like, oh, I closed a million dollars this year. That's great. But you actually cost 600K on your way to the millions. The math yeah. doesn't work, right? And again, this this then, this is where then the decision-making starts to break. Oh, well, like everybody hits a million dollars in year two. And okay, we'll bring so th this again, speaks to a really important point, which I, I don't see happen, um, which is real transparency of the numbers. In so many organizations, they're so protective of the, uh, the financials and they're not really making allies of their salespeople. The, the number of times you hear of sales in conflict with the CFO because of poor communication and uh, lack of clarity. And you know, it, it just strikes me that this, these problems keep stemming back to these human issues around uh, uncertainty. Whenever we have uncertainty, the brain's natural default system is to uh, the worst case scenario. Um, mm -hmm. So if we don't have clear communication from the senior leadership, um, then you end up with Chinese whispers and uh, everyone goes off on their own and you descended into politics and blaming. In a startup and a scale-up in particular, that's got to be lethal. So you, you have to pay attention to all of this stuff because these are wicked problems. They're not mm -hmm. ones you can just throw a point solution at and magically this whole thing disappears because they're mm -hmm. all intertwined. One decision that you make here may well affect your salespeople, but it could easily um, affect your CS for the next three years. It will affect your uh, P&L overall and so finance, and that could affect whether you can hire good marketing people or good product people. You know, these decisions yeah. are really important and you've got to see them as a whole and reflect. And I don't think there's anywhere near 
enough reflection going on and anywhere near enough thinking. There's a lot of shooting and yelling, you know, about fire, fire, but not mm-hmm. really much coordination and alignment. Yeah. I have a perspective on this, which is I think the right way to approach the relationship between sales and finance is for sales to be the student of finance. And it's what worked really well for me. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. I know I would never be able to manipulate a budget or a spreadsheet the way that the finance team at our company could. So I would approach these conversations like, what do I need to know? Like, what do I need to know for our organization? And we had gotten to this place after a couple of these, what do I need to know conversations, which was like, you know what? Holy shit. If we keep hiring SDRs, we're actually going to pay out 100% of our revenue in sales commission if we model this out over the next 12 months. And that led to a decision that was our model can actually cannot support the SDR function, right? We don't have the math. We don't have the math to support the SDR function. And bringing in SDRs is a well-understood thing for sales leaders, right? Like you bring in lead gen, you have your reps focusing on closing deals versus prospecting. But in this case, the math gave us an answer that helped us move away from doom, which was fast forward 12 months, you have to get religion on spending and margin and EBITDA and all this good stuff, not having to then go do a a layoff of a 30-person SDR team where what we were instead able to do was, cool, we're going to stop hiring AEs. And every time an AE role opens, we're just going to move an SDR up, right? Instead of AE role, and we're going to stop hiring SDRs. And we were able to make a decision that didn't wreak havoc on the business or the people in the business, actually, because we understood the math. You've touched on another really important cultural point, which is that I fundamentally believe that your CFO should be involved in sales training and should be acting as a CFO in role plays. They should be critiquing the sales team. Your CRO should be playing the role of the CRO as the buyer. Uh, Your chief of operations should be involved with the sales team so that they get to understand who these people are, what they do, so that they can start generating discretionary effort. Your sales team needs those relationships with the senior executives. And I'd be really curious where you've been able to engineer that with clients, the impact it had on the performance of the sales team and also the performance of the company. It actually starts with the founders of the company or whoever is in the CEO seat where you have to actually set the tone inside the company that we all have a job inside this company, which is a tactic towards making a customer successful enough that they will pay us money for how successful they've become. That's every single person's job in the company, whether you write code, design screens, talk to customers, that's everybody's job. It's a cultural thing where you actually have to create that community inside the company where, hey, like the CFO wants to talk to the sales team. So like an AE is not going to send a Slack message to the CFO, hey, let's set up some time to talk. Right. There's a lot of social hill to climb to do that. A lot of anxiety. I wouldn't do it. I'd be too nervous. Right. I would be like, this guy is going to, or, or, or gal is going to send me home. Right. They're going to yell at me. Right. Or that they would, they would, um, you know, the, the, you know, Mrs. CFO would be like, why, why are you sending me this message? Like, where I'm so far up the hierarchy. The important thing to facilitate this culture where you're going to actually use the personas inside your company as material for your sales process 
starts with the executives. It doesn't start with the sales team. The executives have to go and be the, the open arm, proactive, hey, we're selling to marketing. I'm in marketing. I should be on the sales floor every single day, right? <laughs> like hearing your pitches, hearing you know how you're handling objections. It starts with the founders. It starts with setting up that culture that everybody in the company is responsible for helping a customer be successful enough that they're going to pay us money for how or what we've unlocked for them. It then is on the executives who maybe are the personas that the sales team is selling to, to be really, really proactive with the sales team or the people that are talking to customers. If you sell to marketing leaders and you have a five-person marketing team, marketing team should be sitting in the middle of the sales floor. Right? Like, they should be sitting in the middle of the sales pit. That's where they should be. Well, um, what I don't understand is why marketing, sales, the SDR function, product are all not working together in clusters because they should be feeding off one another. If, if you do have those sorts of teams and you've done your math, then it, it makes so much more sense to have them work together around the customer and their problem. I, what I've been really excited about is there's a new product out called Align. And it allows you to create a collaborative space where you can bring your customers in, have all the assets, your partners as well, and all of your internal team, and all in one place. Because I think that that seems to have been lost, that whole, the, the disjointed nature of the sale. And, and from the customer's experience, you know, they get touched by marketing, then they get thrown over the wall to an SDR who then throws them over the wall to the AE, who throws them over the wall to uh, CS, who throws them over the wall to account management. And every time they have to start again, it's frustrating yeah. for them. What, why are we not just creating this, uh, making it easy for customers to want to buy from us? There's a quote that I read on Twitter from Paul Graham, which was the, the problem with hiring too many people for jobs that can be done by other people is like they start to really advocate for the job that they're doing and how valuable mm. it actually is. So I think there's a bit of like cultural entrenchment around that. And it's 100% true. I went through this two weeks ago. I wanted to buy a, a product and I inbounded. I was, I literally, I knew how much it cost. I was familiar with it. As an inbound lead, I had to do a 45 minute discovery call with an SDR and I wound up going with a competitor because I just needed the product faster. Right? And I knew exactly what they did. And it totally, it was like to a total block to, to me actually buying this thing. But, you know, not to say this was the case with that company, but there's probably an SDR leader that's inside of that company that's saying, no, SDRs need to work inbound leads. Right? And they've become entrenched and advocating for the thing that doesn't make sense for the business. But they're not asking the question, what does the customer need? The customer's become a forgotten afterthought. I'm a big fan of Todd Capone's work. Um, I don't mm -hmm. know if you follow him, the sales historian. The stuff that he puts out, you know, it's 100, 120 years old. And it's stuff that still would work today if only people would actually bother to put the human side back in. Because mm -hmm. I, I suspect as you look at the PL, uh, the sales PL, and the amount of money that is being thrown at technology, thrown at data, thrown at bodies, and thrown at utterly pointless pursuits that with mm -hmm. a decent look at the data and a question, why are we chasing all these non-buyers? Why is it our pipeline is absolutely brimming with people who sound excited and then never spend a cent? What you're sharing is that, you know, that we were kind of bleeding into like, how do you get a, a company aligned around a customer and kind of what they need? It's pretty shocking how, how few companies actually bring in everybody 
to customer conversations or customer phone calls. And we, I mean, we just put this policy in place at Rhythm, which is I will never do a sales pitch again or a customer onboarding again with, without at least one person from our technical team on that call. Not because we need them on the call to get something done, because I need to increase the loop by which you understand what's coming out of this customer's, customer's mouth and what they like and what they don't like. Yeah. And that creates shared empathy for a customer. And it allows you to actually work off what the customer wants instead of making assumptions. I interviewed a lady called Amy Brown. They did, uh, they listened to 10 billion inbound phone calls a year through their AI uh, on behalf of the US health sector and uh, the insurance market. And what she said was what they found was in most insurance companies, 40% of the inquiries coming to the sales team are inquiries that have been generated because an engineer built the website in such a way that didn't uh, wasn't convenient for a human being, but made sense for their logic. 40% mm -hmm. of salespeople's time taken up answering questions about the bloody website. Yeah, I, I mean, I think these you, you see these things across different businesses and they're kind of they're kind of crazy because it's most businesses are not as complex as we made them out to be. Tell your story in a way that allows people to understand it, solve a critical pain point, put up as few barriers to getting them to sign up as you possibly can. Again, when I was walking up and down the streets with a clipboard, I literally had a shopping bag full of jujitsu geese with me when I was doing it, which was cool. Here's the class you're coming to. And I would hand them their jujitsu gi and I'd say, I'll see you at seven o'clock. Right. Like, just like that was like, like that was the, and, and, oh, and what I would also do is I actually had a Sharpie on me. And what I would, what I started doing, because I didn't, I, I wanted them to feel guilty if they didn't show up, I would write their name on the lapel mm -hmm. of the, of the jujitsu gi and I would hand it to them and say, cool, see you at seven o'clock. And you, you want to just remove as much friction for a customer as possible. And I think that's a, it's a very core tenant of, I think, what any business should be doing. Tommy, this has been really, really instructive. Um, I would love to have you back if you would. Yeah, it's it's been great. I think, you know, if, if I could kind of, kind of share one closing thought, I started Rhythm as a, as a tool to help sales leaders, sales managers, sales directors get more fluent in the, the quote unquote math of sales. But I didn't do that because I'm passionate about the math of sales. I did it because I'm passionate about leaders and sales teams and actually building teams that endure for the long haul without the stress, anxiety, and mess that comes with running a sales organization. Most of the decisions that we hate, the increased quota, the shrink the territory, the lay off the team, the pull the resources are actually a function of doing the math wrong, right? And then we have to correct the math and then make that decision which, which reaps havoc. So that's just a little bit of, of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, if you wanna find out more about us or www.onrhythm.io, or just find me on LinkedIn. If you're in sales, no matter what role, like let's chat. We'd love to, you know, just commiserate on on being in the space. <laughs> and I'm going to introduce you to a guy called Dan Goodman. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, Dan Goodwin. Sorry, uh, he runs True Commish. Um, I think oh, cool. he's a very interesting character for you. And uh, there are a couple of others too. Okay, how can people get hold of you? Yeah, so. My email is Tommy, T-O-M-M-Y, at onrhythm.io. Feel free to shoot me an email there. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Tommy McNulty. My Twitter handle is at CityStoop, which kind of gives away my uh, my Brooklyn upbringings there. 
but uh, yeah, just just find me on any of those channels. And like I said, if you're if you're in sales or not in sales, and you're just interested in how to build great teams, again, I, I would love to chat. Excellent. Okay, a couple of passing questions then. First one, um, what's currently impossible for you that if it was possible would change the game completely? Oh boy, you know, I'm planning a wedding right now. <laughs> and I think what's what's been impossible for me is how me and my fiance can get aligned on our P&L <laughs> for, for, for the wedding. But um, if I maybe take a, take a step back and, and think about uh, business, I think I think what's been really, really hard is I run a remote organization and we're a small team. So keeping that like fun, vibrant startup culture alive in mediums like Zoom or Slack has been really difficult and, and, and near impossible. And something that can help us do that would really be a game changer. And you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Tommy age 23 when you're invincible... Uh, immortal, and you knew everything. Um, what one bit of advice should he have listened to? Every time you fail and look like an idiot is going to be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. Mm. Keep going. That's fabulous advice. Good stuff. And would you recommend any books, media uh, channels for people to um, become familiar with the concept of the uh, the PL? Check out our website. Right, uh, we have some really interesting content about it. We have we have a bunch of templates for it and calculators as well. I read a book called Thinking in Numbers, which was uh, just really really fabulous. And then I read another one called Thinking in Systems, um, which really kind of helped me uh, on this journey. But I think I, I think this particularly it's going to be a lot less about like going and finding external content and like go find the person inside your company, go have lunch with them, right, and and. Once you say to that CFO or that director of FP&A that like, hey, I want to increase contribution margin for this sales team, their eyes are going to light up, they're going to pay for your lunch, and you're going to learn exactly how to do it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, free lunch, if nothing else. You've got <laughs> out of this podcast, you've got your money's worth. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Really fabulous. Um, Tommy, thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's been, it's been great. I really love everything that you do for the sales community. So keep on pushing on and um, I hope to see you soon. I look forward to it. Thank you. All right. All right. See ya. Bye-bye. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And do make sure you get in contact with Tommy. If you do want to get more familiar with finance, then I would recommend that you go to the Proverbial Door YouTube page Moeed Amin has over 100 uh, videos on there of him explaining the PL of live companies and explains why they're in good or bad shape so that you can start learning the language of finance. If you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And if you're looking for a coach who's not going to tolerate you and your excuses, but will treat you with um, a firm, kind hand, then do get in touch. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.